seven years, believe it or not. So my name is Brian. I'm uh, one of the pastors here at Refuge. We have been walking verse by verse and chapter by chapter through episodes of Ruth. And we're calling them episodes because it seems like this TV show that kind of continually progresses. If you missed any of the weeks, especially last week, you can go to our website, you can go to our Facebook page, you can go to YouTube, you can go to your favorite podcasting app. We're out there. And stuff I've said, God only knows where that has landed out there in the internet world. But you can go out and listen to that. Let me catch you up in case you're new here. My daughter is back from college tonight, so I know she's new here tonight. So let me just catch her up if nobody else. Episode one, the first week, I call it tragedy and death because it was a difficult episode. There is a famine in the town of Bethlehem. The patriarch of this family, Elimelech, moves his wife, whose name is Naomi, and their two sons to Moab. Moab is a foreign land away from Israel. Elimelech dies in that foreign land. His sons go on and get married. Their wives' names are important. Their names are Ruth and Orpah. Ten years go by, the two sons die as well, leaving Ruth and Orpah as widows in a patriarchal society which is equivalent nearly to death. Word of food, though, comes back in Bethlehem, and so Naomi, with her daughter-in-laws, begin the long trip back to Bethlehem. But Naomi, along the way, says, girls, you got a long life ahead of you. Stay here in Moab. There's a chance here at least, since you are a Moabite, to get remarried. I'm essentially going home now to die. You stay behind. It's good advice. And Orpah says, I agree. She obeys her mother-in-law. But Ruth says, no. Naomi, where you go, I will go. And your God will be my God. And your people will be my people. Is this moment of conversion to the Jewish faith. And so they make their way back to Bethlehem. The story ends with Mara now being the new name of Naomi, which means bitter. And it's really just this indication of just deep, deep, non-functional depression for Naomi. And so we picked up episode two there, Ruth the Moabite. Every time they say Ruth's name in this story, it is Ruth the Moabite. To remind her, the hero of the story is actually an outsider, a foreigner. And so Ruth the Moabite, she's new to the faith. And she says, you know what, Naomi, I am going to put my faith into action. And let's see what God does. And she goes out and she begins gleaning from the fields. Gleaning from the fields is the Jewish welfare system. It's like a food bank or a food pantry. You go along the corners of the fields, you get what's left behind. It was a law that they were to leave food behind and you came by and picked it up. And it just so happens, the story says, that Ruth happened upon a field by the man, name of a man named Boaz. And we're told it just so happens that this Boaz, by the way, is a close family relative. Now, Boaz, in the story, we're told he's a good man, and he's also powerful, and he's influential. And this good, powerful man, he takes notice of Ruth, and he creates a safe place for Ruth, and he becomes a safe person for Ruth, and he creates boundaries that are safe, and he is generous, and he is encouraging, and he doesn't just give her enough food to eat, she gives her more than enough food to eat, and even invites her to sit at his table, and we're left wondering, is this a romance? We're not told. Ruth takes the food back to Naomi, and this food coming back from Boaz restores Naomi's faith. 
Last week, we took a little break and a little diversion. We had what's called a very special episode, if you remember those from the 80s or 90s. And we had an interview with David and Nicole about this church being a safe place. By the way, Nicole is out tonight because she is graduating herself with a bachelor's degree in biblical theology. So congratulations. (laughs) Excuse me. To Nicole, David is out tonight because he's in the Keys, so do not give him any applause at all. So for the next two weeks, we're going to wrap up this series. If you watch anything on like Netflix or TV, you know when there's a big series, it's got to have a two-part series finale. So we are doing a two-part conclusion that fit together for these next two weeks, chapter 3 and chapter 4, verse by verse. So let's pick up chapter 3, verse 1. It starts like this. One day, Naomi said to Ruth, my daughter, it's time that I found a permanent home for you so that you will be provided for. Now, sorrow will follow Naomi to her grave. You don't get over losing a husband. You don't get over losing two sons, ever. You just don't get over it. But there is a change, it seems, in Naomi. She's rediscovered some of God's love, some of his hesed, his abounding love and grace. And that rediscovery has freed her from some of the self-absorption which depression brings. And it has given her at least enough new life that she now begins to focus on this daughter-in-law that is right in front of her. See, Ruth is going to outlive Naomi. And Ruth still has a pretty bleak future. She's still a Moabite in a foreign land. She still has no husband. She still has no sons. This is ancient patriarchy. That makes for a very, very difficult life. And so Naomi says before the clock runs out, she's thinking. She's developing a plan to find permanent provision for Ruth. In other words, a life insurance policy, if you will. So verse 2 starts like this. says, Boaz is a close relative of ours. We were told that last chapter. Now Naomi verbalizes it. We're not told how close of a relative, and that's important to the story. says, and he's been very kind by letting you gather grain with his young women. Tonight, he will be winnowing barley at the threshing floor. Anyone done any winnowing of barley at the threshing floors this week? No? Let me explain to you what this is. Threshing floor. I think sometimes if you know this story and you grew up in the church, maybe we have a misunderstanding like this is some private little room that they're going to. The threshing floor was actually out in the open, in a field, great open sky. The workers would pick and harvest all these sheaves and they would drop them on the threshing floor, this wide open space. They would pile them up and then the horses and the donkeys and the oxen and the cattle, they would trample back and forth over this grain. And as they did that, the grain would be loosened from the sheaves. That's the threshing floor. It's this big area that went over top of it over and over again. And then they would come in with a winnowing tool. could be like a pitchfork or like what you see in this picture here, where they would take that grain, they would toss it up in the air, the wind would blow, the uh, chaff would blow away, and the grain, because it was heavy, would fall to the ground. Threshing floor, winnowing. And so since Boaz is going to be winnowing at the threshing floor, that means it's the end of the harvest season. That's important. The end of the harvest season for him means it's payday. It's been a decade of famine. This man is a business owner and now business is finally booming again. It's time to pay the workers. It's time to settle up your accounts. It's time to count your profits. It's profitable, so guess what? It's a big party. 
So we got the threshing floor. It's payday. It's a party. Verse 3 says, now, this is Naomi speaking, do as I tell you. Take a bath and put on perfume. This is 3,000 years ago. You didn't bathe a lot. You didn't get cleaned up a lot. The only time you usually did was for something in the temple, something holy, or for a very special event, maybe, I don't know, like a wedding. And so she says, put on your perfume, take a bath, and dress in your nicest clothes. She's getting dolled up here. She's getting cleaned up. And as a widow, Ruth would have been wearing the garments of a widow. I don't know exactly what those look like, but it was specific garments that made her known as a widow. And now here she is taking off those garments, and she's putting on her nicest clothes. So this is the plan. Get cleaned up, put on perfume, put on your nicest clothes. Then go to the threshing floor, this place where the grain is going on, where the big party is happening. But don't let Boaz see you until he is finished eating and drinking. Verse 4. Be sure to notice where he lies down. In other words, wait till he's off and alone. Then go and uncover his feet, lie down there, and he will tell you what to do. You know, we give you guys homework every week, and maybe you read that and like, hmm, what's Brian going to do with this? (laughs) I'm kind of wondering the same thing tonight. (laughs) I wanted this so much not to be a sexual thing. I mean, it's grad night tonight. We wanted to celebrate. Do I really want to do this sexualized sermon? Seriously. And so I tried. I'm like, hmm. Okay, Boaz is the kinsman redeemer. It's a Jewish law. He can provide for the family. This is just some weird Hebrew custom where you uncover a dude's feet and he's godly and it preserves the family. Nothing to do with sex at all. I can't do enough cartwheels and backflips and somersaults to get around it. Naomi is telling Ruth to do what you think Naomi is telling Ruth to do. I went to the commentaries to uncover feet. I thought it was to make him cold so he would wake up. (laughs) Apparently feet are a sexual euphemism for guy parts. To go and lie with him, if you've led the Bible, you know what to lie with somebody means. Trying to find salvation for myself, though, I went to Emory's storybook Jesus Bible, because it saves the day a lot for me. (laughs) And I read how they were going to approach the story. Guess what? The story's not there. (laughs) They left it out. And then I wondered, all you all that grew up in the church, I didn't grow up in the church, but I know about flannel graphs, I know what those are. How did this look? (laughs) On the flannel graph. I went to the commentaries, as I mentioned, they were no help. They are all over the map. Depending on the denomination and the theology, you'd go to one commentary, it says, obviously, this is a sexual thing. You go to the next one, obviously, this has nothing to do with sex. And so for those of you who are the Bible clearly states crowd, who thinks that everything in the Bible is prescriptive, I mean, how does this come out prescriptive? I mean, it's, it's biblical motherly advice, right? What kind of mother gives this kind of advice to her daughter? Daughter, you're in college, you're about to flunk out, we're broke as a joke. Why don't you head on over to the frat house, wait for everybody to get drunk, ride down by the richest boy there, and he will tell you what to do. <laughs> the author is purposely building sexual tension. And he's making it weird, 
and he's making it uncomfortable, and he is trying to make you squirm. But why? Well, if you've been at refuge any length of time, you know that I teach that the number one rule when you study the Bible is it's all about Jesus. And if you're reading a story in the Bible and you can't find Jesus in the story, rule number one, it's all about Jesus, try again. And so let me help you out maybe a little bit with this one. The Gospel of Matthew starts with a genealogy of Jesus. Normally in a Jewish genealogy, again, remember this is a patriarchal culture, it's an all-male list, but Matthew includes four women. And all four of the women that Matthew includes have stories with a sexual past. And so from my experience, being around the church now for a decade plus, churches, and particularly pastors and teachers, when they come to stories like these, they either A, tend to ignore the story altogether, B, they focus on the non-sexual aspects of the story, or C, and it happens way too often, they tell the story and paint this negative picture of the woman seductress in the story. So here's the four women that are mentioned in Jesus' genealogy. Tamar. Tamar was Judas's twice-widowed daughter-in-law. She poses as a prostitute to get Judah, her father-in-law, to impregnate her. Weird story. Rahab is mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus, and she's always Rahab the prostitute. Clear enough. Bathsheba is mentioned in the story, and we know that's who David committed adultery with, and often it's teached that Bathsheba enticed David into this affair. And then, of course, we have Ruth the Moabite here with Naomi trying to seduce Boaz. And it typically will go like this. There was a medieval church father who kind of started taking the church down this path. His name is Albert the, I call him not so great. And he said it like this. He said, women or woman is a misbegotten man and has a faulty and defective nature. What she cannot get, she seeks to obtain through lying and diabolical deceptions. And so to put it briefly, one must be on one's guard with every woman as if she were a poisonous snake and a horned devil. Thus in evil and perverse things, woman is a cleverer than man. We know that is true. Her feelings drive woman toward every evil or her feelings drive woman toward every evil just as reason impels man toward all good. I hope we've moved past that now. But I'm also not sure that most of these people who are teaching this and going down these paths with these women has ever read their Bible. But Scripture not only vindicates these women, it elevates every single one of them. Judah condemns himself for what happened with Tamar, and he exonerates her. Rahab makes Hebrews 11 list of the faith all-stars. When the prophet Nathan confronts King David, he doesn't label Bathsheba as a seductress. He calls her a lamb, not an accomplice, but a victim, because David's actions constituted what we all now think is rape. And then number four, Ruth, spoiler, she has a child named Obed. She has a child named David. And David eventually brings us who? Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Verse five, Ruth says, I will do everything you say. Where you go, I'll go. What you say, I'll say. And so we're left here to pause. Is this a good plan? Is this a good idea? We don't know. It's left ambiguous on person. You want to know why I think that's a good thing? Because not every idea I have is a good idea either. Now, every action I try to implement is a good idea. And so if this half-cocked bad idea makes it into the Bible, 
maybe God can use some of my harebrained ideas too. And so as we read this story, again, we ought to be asking questions. What is Naomi expecting to happen here? Did Naomi consider all the bad stuff that could happen? Will Boaz's integrity, will his character hold up while he's tipsy? And there's this dressed pretty perfume younger woman that he's attracted to lying at his feet. Why doesn't Ruth just go talk to Boaz? Wouldn't that have been a simpler plan? But the Bible is an honest book, and it leaves the messy parts messy. This is a difficult situation that Ruth and Naomi find themselves in. And I know some of you here tonight, you are dealing with difficult situations. Situation where there is really no great strategy, no easy solutions. And so there's two choices. You sit and do nothing, or you try to do something. And so this isn't a permission to sin. This isn't, say, go out and do every dumb thing that you think of. But it's to acknowledge the messy parts of our stories and then doing what we think is the best option and trusting God to use our mistakes. Naomi's plan is riddled with problems. There is a lot of risk involved in this plan. She's sending Ruth out alone at night in a sexy outfit to the threshing floor which didn't have good reputations. They were places of drunkenness and immorality. And so this writer, I want to give him a lot of credit of this story. He has done his job. He's created suspense. He's created intrigue. And now don't you want to read the rest of the story and see how this plays out? Verse 6. So she went down to the threshing floor that night and followed the instructions of her mother-in-law. So Ruth goes there. She's checking it out. She's watching. She stays hidden. She sees Boaz eating. He's drinking. As he drinks, he becomes more talkative. Maybe his accent comes out a little bit more because that's what happens when people drink. The party gets livelier. She makes it a point to keep her eye on Boaz and where he goes to lie down because lying with the wrong person would be devastating. That would not be the plan. Verse 7 says, After Boaz finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits... He lay down at the far end of the pile of grain and went to sleep. Then Ruth came quietly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. And so Ruth has followed Naomi's instructions to a T. Everything is quiet. Maybe an occasional snore. She tiptoes her way to where the unsuspecting Boaz is sound asleep. He uncovers, she uncovers his feet. She lies down. And she waits. What's she thinking as she waits? What's running through her mind? Is this a good plan? I sure miss my husband. I miss my country, Moab. Look at those stars. Isn't he a big God? Verse 8 says, around midnight, Boaz suddenly woke up and turned over. The line of the story, he was surprised to find a young woman lying at his feet. In a raspy voice, he says, who are you? She responds, I'm your servant, Ruth. Spread the corner of your garment, spread the corner of your covering over me, for you are my family redeemer. Ruth's been laying there, wide awake, next to this man. And guess what? She's decided to change Naomi's script. 
Instead of waiting for Boaz to tell her what to do, she tells Boaz what he needs to do. This is a really cool part of the story. If you remember back to chapter 2, Boaz praises Ruth for taking coverage, taking refuge under God's wings. And so Ruth here actually uses the exact same language by saying, you, Boaz, now be my refuge. Be my covering, for you are my redeemer. What this is is a reverse marriage proposal. It is Ruth asking Boaz, hey, give me an engagement ring. It's a bold move in a patriarchal society. And I want to remind you of that because I said again in week number one, We should know this, but the Bible is not American. It's not a Western book. So it's really easy to come to a story like this and really Americanize this into this American Western love story, like some episode of The Bachelor. So help me out here. If we were doing that, the older, handsome Bachelor would be played by... George Clooney. That's who I have in my notes. See, I know how you all think. And the story would go like, oh, George Clooney is too busy with this successful business. He's been building it. He's had relationships, but he's never gotten married. And then along comes this beautiful young widow played by. Okay, I went with Jenna Ortega just because I just watched the show with her in it and she's young. So she shows up. It's George Clooney, the young girl, the older man. It's fireworks. There's a kiss. And as all American stories go, the sexual tension is resolved. This story is not an American romance novel. We learned last chapter that Boaz is a well-respected man. You know what that means? It may not mean what you think. A well-respected man 3,000 years ago means that he is a man with what? Sons. He's respected because he has sons. You had no respect if you did not have sons. Guess what? To have sons, hard to do that without a wife or often in this time, wives. And I mention that because I want us to see this less of a love story in our modern sense. And I want us to see this much more a story of redemption that is pointing us forward to the great Redeemer. And so Ruth and her proposal, she's confronting Boaz now with two Mosaic laws. If you remember the past weeks, the author's been hinting at these laws throughout the story. The first law is the kinsman redeemer law. This law required that if a man was forced to sell his land, he was broke, he died, whatever, the nearest living relative was to purchase said land so that that land could be kept in the family, could be kept in their tribe. That's law number one. Law number two that she's using here is the Leverate Law, chapter one. That required that the brother of a man who dies without a male heir, without a son to marry his widow, he is to then marry the widow. And then their firstborn son was to take the dead man's place in the family tree as the head of the family. That's the Leverate Law. And so these two laws are actually technically unrelated, but Ruth... This Jewish outsider, in a brilliant move, she takes the two laws and she fuses them together to surpass whatever it was that Naomi intended. And she's able to do this because instead of just seeing the letter of these laws, Ruth is able to get to the spirit of what God intended with the law. 
Again, we saw this in chapter 2 with Boaz. The letter of the law was to allow poor people to glean from your fields. But Boaz got to the letter of the law, which was God's heart of generosity. Remember rule number one, it's all about Jesus. Jesus is the one who perfected to move from the letter of the law to the spirit of the law. The Sermon on the Mount, he had heard it said, thou shalt not murder. That was the letter of the law. But I tell you, if someone does and you call someone an idiot, that's the same thing. That's the spirit of the law. Jesus said, you have heard the law that says, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. In this way, you are acting as a child of God. That is the spirit of the law. As humans, our natural inclination is to be minimalist when it comes to obeying Scripture. What is the least I have to do to obey the law? If I give 10% of my money, are you happy, God? Did I keep the rule? But we're getting to the spirit of the law here, and Boaz is neither the nearest relative, nor is he Elimelech's blood brother, But Ruth is able to move beyond the letter of the law and to get to God's heart behind the law. And so if I can challenge you in anything tonight through this story, break the law like Ruth. Be willing to move beyond minimal obedience. As Jesus says, pay attention to the camel instead of trying to strain out the net. And so choose love over the law. Choose relationship over rules. Choose grace over guilt. Verse 10 says this, the Lord bless you, my daughter. This is Boaz's second time speaking. It's also the second time he's used that word, my daughter. Remember again, back to chapter 2, my daughter. So it's an inclination that Boaz isn't looking here for a romp in the hay, that he's looking to honor God. He's looking to honor Ruth says, you are showing even more family loyalty now than you did before. For you have not gone after a younger man, whether rich or poor. Boaz is a safe person for Ruth. And here again, he praises her character. You are more than beauty. You are more than what our culture says of women. He goes on, he says, now don't worry about a thing, my daughter. I will do what is necessary. For everyone in town knows You are a virtuous woman. It's the same language used in Proverbs 31. It's that same virtuous woman. And so as the kids say today, Ruth is somewhat of a boss babe. (laughs) Because Naomi was like, Boaz will tell you what to do. And Ruth says, I will do what you tell me to do. But now things have come full circle. Ruth says, Boaz, here's what you're going to do. And Boaz, who is rich and powerful, says, I will do what you tell me to do. Verse 12, but while it's true that I am one of your family redeemers, there is another man who is closely, more closely related to you than I am. Now we have a problem. There was an order to this kinsman redeemer law. It was brother, uncle, cousin, close relative. I mentioned earlier, we don't know Boaz's relationship to the family, but someone else is in front of him. 
And I just want to pause here again, and I know I focused on this a few times and why we're calling this episodes like a TV show or a great book, because this is just a really well-written story, even by our modern standards. If you've ever taken a writing class, a creative writing class, this is how stories generally go. There's exposition. It's just kind of laying the foundation, the time and place of the story. And we started this story, it's the time of the judges, so we know it's dark and it's difficult days. And then in the story, to be any good, there's got to be an inciting incident, this thing that happens that changes the story and the direction of the characters. And so for us, it was famine, and it was death, and it was tragedy. Maybe for you, it's when Mario hears that Bowser is holding Princess Toastal captive, and you know that he must go find her. That is the inciting incident. And then there is rising action as we move towards that in the story. And so for us, it was the field and Ruth meeting Boaz. And it begins to rise in intensity. And then there is a climax in the story. It's the turning point where an irreversible decision happens. And then it's resolution. And you're like, ah, walk out of the theater, clap, throw your popcorn in the trash bin. But this author does a nice little trick that happens in a lot of stories. He takes us to the point of resolution, and you think it's there. And then he drops another crisis into our laps. And so Boaz says, stay here tonight, and in the morning I will talk to him. And if he is willing to redeem you very well, let him marry you. But if he is not willing, then as surely as the Lord lives, I will redeem you myself. Now lie down here until the morning. So Ruth lay at Boaz's feet until the morning, but she got up before it was light enough for enough people to recognize each other, for Boaz has said, no one must know that a woman was here at the threshing floor. Then Boaz said to her, bring your cloak and spread it out. He measured six scoops of barley into the cloak and placed it on her back. Then he returned to his town. Boaz is a safe person. He could have slept with Ruth. That's what she's offering. He could have done nothing and just sent her away. Get out of here, you crazy lady. That would have been the letter of the law. But he waited until morning. Doesn't make her do the walk of shame. Doesn't want her reputation tarnished because he's a safe person for Ruth. In this story, over and over and over again, he says, stay here. I'll keep you safe. We'll get up before the sun. And oh, by the way, here's a nice gift for that mother-in-law, Naomi of yours. So I'm going to ask the band to come up as I finish this chapter. Verse 16 says this. It says, when Ruth went back to her mother-in-law, Naomi asked, what happened, my daughter? Ruth told Naomi everything Boaz had done for her. And she added, he gave me six scoops of barley and said, don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Just so you know, six scoops of barley, that's 80 pounds. It's very generous. It's not just enough to eat. It's enough to feed them for a long period of time. And it's meant to send a message to Naomi. And so verse 18 ends this way. It says, then Naomi said to her, just be patient, my daughter, until we hear what happens. The man won't rest until he has settled things today. That's the end of chapter 3. And like Ruth, I've just decided tonight, we'll just have to patiently wait to hear what happens until next week in this story. I mean, this is meant to be a cliffhanger. And so I think it's best that we just close tonight in the tension. What's going to happen in this story?